The year was 1812. The place was a little town about several miles away from Paris called Couvray in France. Little three-year-old Louis loved to watch his father make saddles and harnesses out of leather. And one day he was watching his father work, and he was in his father's workshop when he picked up one of his father's awls, A-W-L, awl, you know what an awl is. So he picked up one of these awls on his father's workbench, and he just picked up a piece of leather and was poking at that leather, trying to punch a hole through it. But unfortunately, he had it up near his face, and as he punched through the leather, the awl slipped and went into his left eye. At first, that injury didn't seem to be so bad, but then his eye got infected and he lost his sight in that eye. I guess it's that one, isn't it? (laughs) And then the infection spread into the other eye. Eventually, Louis lost vision in that eye too. And little Louis would never see again. But think about that. If one little slip of a hand changed his life forever, it was what the saints of old used to call a dark providence. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but it used to be a phrase that Christians spoke of often. A dark providence. Providence, that word, is not one that we use a lot, is it? When's the last time you used the word providence? It's kind of fallen out of our vocabulary. When you hear the word, what do you think of? Maybe what springs into your mind is the capital city of Rhode Island. Anybody here from Providence, Rhode Island? There you go. So you think of it as that, right? Your hometown. Roger Williams, you know that story, right? Out of history. He left the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1636. Why? Because he had religious convictions. That's why. He named the place where he settled Providence because, he said, he had a sense of God's merciful providence to me in my distress. Roger Williams believed in a God who manages the universe down to the smallest detail. He believed in a God who guides our lives in such a way that everything that happens to us fits into an overarching foreordained purpose. Good things and bad things. Things that go our way, things that don't go our way. Even when a little boy sticks an awl into his eye and goes blind, God is working a plan. That's what the doctrine of providence is all about. And and it's a plan that is glorifying God in some way, in a mysterious way, right? We may not see or understand what way it glorifies God, but it also is somehow good for His people when things happen. In a word, providence means, and all of us can understand this phrase, that God is in control. You know, I don't think it's just chance that I chose this passage today. Perhaps this very passage will change your life Perhaps this very passage will speak to a dark providence in your own life. Perhaps something has happened of which I nor anyone else in the room knows about. And yet God is going to speak to you today a reassuring word that He's in control. 
Do you know the story of Joseph? As I said, we just sort of jumped right into Genesis 45 in the middle of it. It's a long story, actually. You should uh, perhaps this afternoon or this week read Genesis 37 through 50. Get the whole flow of the story of Joseph. It's, it's really one of the most, I think, tantalizing stories in the whole Bible. It just makes for great drama. And uh, you know that we go back all the way to uh, our patriarch, Abraham. We have to start there. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And his 11th son was Joseph. He was the firstborn of one of Jacob's wives whom he loved the most. And that was Rachel. Well, Joseph was Jacob's favorite child. Now, parents, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to have a favorite son or daughter. But it's very clear that Jacob had a favorite, and that favorite was Joseph. Jacob made that very famous coat of many colors and gave it to his son. Can you imagine doing that, mom or dad? Giving this special garment to one of your children that it might remind all the rest of the children forever and ever how much they are your favorite. You know, it's just so unethical and so unwise. But Joseph grew up with this idea that I'm the best. He had dreams. He had dreams that seemed to indicate that he was superior to his brothers. So how do you suppose that the brothers felt? I mean, they just, this guy drove them up the wall. Uh, They were totally annoyed by him and his boasting and so on. So actually, as time went on, they wanted to kill him. Most of the brothers wanted to kill him. But they ended up throwing Joseph into this empty cistern. Well, some foreign traders came along, and the brothers were still there watching this scene unfold. Some foreign traders came along, and the brothers sold Joseph to these traders. And then later, those very traders took Joseph down to Egypt, where they sold him to a man named Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Well, Joseph turned out to be this hard worker. You know, he, he, he gradually began to get a little more sanctified. He was a hard worker. He was dependable. He earned himself a good reputation as a servant to this man, Potiphar. But unfortunately, Potiphar's wife framed Joseph. He framed him. She framed him. She accused him of making sexual advances toward her, which was totally untrue. So his, her husband Potiphar believed her story and threw Joseph into prison where he languished for, it's a bit unclear, it could have been as few as two years, it could have been as many as 12 years. Somewhere in that neighborhood, Joseph stayed in prison in Egypt. And eventually he was freed from prison and became the prime minister of Egypt. He grew to be number two man in Egypt. That's amazing, an amazing story. And thanks to Joseph's ingenuity, Egypt was able to survive a seven-year famine that would have otherwise killed many, many people, I'm sure. Well, meanwhile, that brings us up to Genesis 42. In Genesis 42, Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt because they're looking for food. The famine has affected the land of Canaan, their homeland, just as it had affected Egypt. And they meet their brother. See, this is why this story is just so dramatic. They meet Joseph, but they don't recognize him. Joseph recognizes them, however, and he sends the brothers back to Canaan and tells them, 
Come back again, but be sure you bring your other brother, Benjamin. Benjamin was actually Joseph's full brother, the other son of Rachel. Bring back Benjamin, because they had left him back home with their father, Jacob. So in Genesis 43, they come back to Egypt, this time with Benjamin. Now I'm making the long story very short, but basically here they are in Genesis 45, where I read earlier, they are standing once again in the presence of Joseph, their brother. They don't recognize him, but he does recognize them. Now keep in mind, Joseph was just a teenager when they sold him into those Ishmaelite traders. The Bible says he was 17 years old. Now he is in his late 30s. He's dressed as an Egyptian. I'm sure he has an accent, whatever that accent was. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And so finally in Genesis 45, when Joseph can take it no longer, he bursts into tears. And he says in verse 3, Guys, it's me. (laughs) It is me. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. Your long lost brother. The one you hated so. I just would love, I'd give anything to see the look on their faces. It's all an amazing story of the providence of God. So we're going to talk about providence today and I'm going to take us through three things. First, the mystery of providence. Secondly, the comfort of providence. And finally, the power of providence. Okay, mystery, comfort, power. Let's dive in. First, let's talk about the mystery of providence because, brothers and sisters, this is a mystery, all right? This is one sermon about a great big topic that we could talk for years about. It's a mystery. Look with me again at verses 4 and 5. Joseph said to these brothers now that are just hearing that (laughs) this is Joseph. He says to his brothers in verse 4, "'Come near me, please.'" And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph. Listen to Joseph here, whom you sold into Egypt. And then in verse 5, he says, now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you see the mystery of what we're talking about? You did this, but God did this. (laughs) Verse 4 says, you sold me into Egypt. Verse 5 says, God sent me before you. You sold me to Egypt, but verse 7 says, God sent me before you. He says it a second time. You sent me to Egypt, you sold me to Egypt, but verse 8 says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. See, providence is a mystery because it consists of two things that seem paradoxical. God foreordains everything that comes to pass. Everything. But in such a way that He is not the author of sin. Let's talk about that paradox, that apparent paradox. First of all, God foreordains everything that comes to pass. What this passage teaches, and so many other passages in the Bible as well, is that God has a definite plan and purpose for the world. 
And every second of every day, He is in control of everything and everybody as He works out that plan and that purpose. So really, friends, there's really no such thing as, as an accident. Ultimately, there's no such thing as luck. You know, we say that all the time. Good luck with this, good luck with that. We are ascribing some power to luck, which doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as an accident or luck or chance or fate. Now, let's talk about reality. You and I may say that Hurricane Patricia hit Mexico. It was an act of, what what do we say? It was an act of nature. But in reality, it was a part of God's plan. God was behind that. Overarching that hurricane was a plan of which it was a small piece. That plane that went down over the Sinai Peninsula last week, killing, what, 224 people on board? We may say, and rightly so, that apparently ISIS was behind that or some terrorist group was behind that. Some group put a bomb in that plane as it appears, but ultimately it was a piece of God's plan. Because God is in control of all things. He has foreordained everything that comes to pass. And that can be said as well of any tragic event that happens in our world. There are passages of Scripture that we could go to and see that even behind bad things, God is working a plan. For example, Isaiah 45 verse 7. God speaks there, Isaiah 45, 7. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Over in Lamentations, a little book called uh, Lamentations by the prophet Jeremiah, he says, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? See, even if we say that God permitted something to happen, behind that permission is a choice of God to allow something, right? So even if we say that God permits something, it's still part of His plan. He could intervene. He could... He could uh, prohibit that from happening, but He doesn't because even bad things, even tragedies, are somehow part of a plan that God had put in place before time began. Maybe this will help. Um, Imagine that the universe is like this enormous airport. And, And in the midst of that enormous airport is a control tower. And God's up there. God is in that control tower. He is always on the job 24-7. He's never taken a day off, never a moment off. He's always guiding the airplanes to their appointed destinations. Every event, it's, it's all, it's all going to work out because it's all part of God's decree. Jerry Bridges, an author some of you might know, said this, nothing is too large or too small to escape God's governing hand. The spider building its web in the corner and Napoleon marching his armies across Europe are both under his control. I like that. God's in control, you see, when bad things happen. 
God's in control when good things happen. My daughter-in-law is expecting her fourth baby. My wife is visiting up there in Pennsylvania, helping them out. They say that that was an unplanned pregnancy. (laughs) No, it wasn't. God had it all a part of His plan. God's in control, you know, when people sin against you and it takes a huge chunk out of your heart. God's in control when you sin against other people. God is in control when you suffer tragedy and heartache and loss and injustice. So that Ephesians 1.11 is true that says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. You know, if I didn't believe this, I'm not sure I would want to wake up tomorrow morning. If this universe is ruled partly by chance, I heard somebody the other day say that God is in control of some things, but not all things. Some things have just happened because of random events. If I believed that, I'm not sure I would want to wake up tomorrow. To live in a world in which things happen for no reason whatsoever, that ultimately or in eternity we won't find out that somehow this was, this was right... It it would be a universe I wouldn't choose to live in. But I believe that God's in control of all things, and that gives me reason for hope. It helps me to live with a sense of confidence in God. I may not understand why, and I don't. There are lots and lots of things that happen that seem on the surface of it to have no rhyme or reason. But I know what Joseph knew, that even when people do bad things, God is somehow in control. And one day, it may be when we're in heaven, maybe when we're in glory, one day we will discover, oh, now, now I see how that was glorifying to you and good for us. So we're talking about this mystery. God foreordains everything that comes to pass. But the other part of the mystery is that God does not, this does not make God the author of sin. God is not the author of sin because you see, God hates terrorism. God hated what happened on 9-11. God hates racism and crime and drug addiction and all the other sins and evils that this world contains. God hates death. Do you remember the story of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus? His friend Lazarus had died and, and the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? He was weeping tears of rage against death. God hates that. He weeps with victims of cruelty and injustice. God is furious when a little child's abused or when a woman is raped or an alcoholic takes another drink. God is enraged at those things. His heart breaks over man's inhumanity to man. He hurts when you hurt. He really does, but somehow in a way that we'll never understand this side of heaven. And I'll certainly never be able to explain it in this one sermon. Somehow, the evil that God hates serves His plan. Somehow, the sin that one day God will judge fits into His decree. God ordained that it should be, but He's not to blame for it. See, it's a mystery, isn't it? Evil and sin and injustice and hate and unrighteousness are the product of 
Satan, our enemy, our adversary, and we freely as sinners participate in it and gladly cooperate with Satan in it. But providence says that up there in the control tower, above Satan, above the Sinai Peninsula, if you will, above Washington, D.C., above Wall Street, above Vero Beach, above this church, above your unjust situation, in a way that you cannot fully comprehend it, there is a wise, good, loving, sovereign God. Is that not what Joseph says there in verse 4? We come back to our text. He says to his brothers, You made a bad mistake. You guys, Reuben and Gad and Naphtali and Judah, you guys and all the rest of you sinned against me by selling me into slavery. It was awful, guys. It was terrible. It was unjust. It was awful being in that prison for, what, 5, 10, or 12 years. But, verses 7 and 8, it was all part of God's plan. It was a plan for me, a plan for you, a plan for the entire nation of Egypt and Canaan. It was all a part of the the plan. But if you had been with Joseph sitting there in that prison that day, do you suppose you would have felt that way? No. It was unjust. It was wrong. But God was in control. It wasn't you who sent me here, says Joseph, but God. God used your evil decision to accomplish a great good. You know, because of you, because I was here, I was able to become a great leader of Egypt and help the Egyptians prepare for this famine. Because of you and your sinful act, God has saved many lives. Even things that are sad and evil fit into a good plan that God is working. Do you know what the worst act of evil and injustice that has ever been was? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The fact that sinful people took a perfect, righteous man, Jesus, God in the flesh, and accused Him and slandered Him and tortured Him and beat Him and nailed Him to a cross, that was the worst injustice that man has ever committed in this world. And yet, was it a part of God's plan? Absolutely. You and I wouldn't be here today if it weren't. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost stood up and this is what he said about that act. He said, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do you see that mystery? The same mystery is in that verse in the book of Acts. God's plan but not the author of sin. People and Satan are. See, if you'd been standing there at the foot of the cross that day when Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, if you had been there, standing there, looking up at this righteous man, Jesus, what would you have said? You would have said, No! It's not right! Why are they doing this to a man who did nothing wrong, who did nothing but good all his life? Why are they doing that? It would have made no sense to you at the time. But now, we, looking back on the cross, we understand, don't we? It was an essential part 
of God's plan of salvation for the world. The worst act of injustice in all of history was scripted by a sovereign, wise God. If that was true, how much more likely is it that the injustices and the trials that we face in our lives are also part of a good and wise plan that one day we will understand better than we do now? A poet once wrote, Things don't just happen to us who love God. They're planned by His dear hand, then molded and shaped and timed by His clock. Things don't just happen. They're planned. So, what effect should this have on you and me? If we believe that God is sovereign over all things, even the tiniest of details, what changes should we see in our lives? Two things. First, it should comfort us. The comfort of providence. I bet most of us in this room have memorized Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Isn't that a great Bible verse? If you're a follower of Jesus, that verse means what? It means that God allows nothing to happen in your life that isn't for your ultimate good. Nothing. Who at the time would have predicted the chain of events that led Joseph and his brothers together in Genesis 45? Uh, You remember the Smothers brothers? Remember what Tommy used to say? Mama always loved you best. Well, that's the situation. Jacob loved Joseph best. He really, really did. And his brothers were jealous of him. They hated him. They sold him to this group of traders. Potiphar ends up buying Joseph. He makes him steward over his house. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He refuses. She accuses him of being a pervert. Joseph lands in prison. He interprets two men's dreams, but one of them forgets all about Joseph. Joseph remains in prison another two years or so after that. Pharaoh, meanwhile, dreams about cows and stalks of grain. Joseph interprets those dreams and he gives Pharaoh advice about dealing with the coming famine. And Egypt ends up becoming a supplier of food for the entire Middle East. I mean, isn't that just crazy? That is too crazy for a guy to make up. This has to be God's word. So if those Midianite traders, think about that, if those traders had not come by at just the moment they did while Joseph's brothers were still around, he would have never gotten sold to them and taken to Egypt and all of that. I mean, the timing had to be exact. We could even go back further. What if Joseph had, or rather Jacob, what if Jacob had fallen in love with Leah instead of Rachel? Joseph would have never been born and we wouldn't even be talking about this today. I'm sure you have stories like that in your life. Uh, I have many, one of which is that If I had not attended a certain meeting up in Orlando about 15 years ago, I would have never found out that they were looking for uh, an associate pastor, and I would have never taken the job, never ended up in Orlando. I would have never been here today. (laughs) I mean, everybody's got these stories, how we see God's hand guiding the events of our lives. For those who love God, All things work together for good. 
Now, it may not feel like it when you're going through it. But later on, you'll look back on that and say to yourself, Why was I so worried? Why didn't I trust God better? Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher of the 1800s, said, Christian, there is no sweeter pillow than providence. That's a great thing to say. There is no sweeter pillow than providence. So why is it? I I ask you, and, and you should think about this. Why is it that some of us spend much of our lives regretting yesterday's mistakes, wringing our hands over tomorrow's decisions, fretting over things that might or might not happen when we have a sovereign God who's in control? I'll bet that some of you are absolutely paralyzed by fear sometimes, about fear about the future, worry about today, or guilt about the past. You know what? Atheists and deists ought to live that way, but not theists. What's an atheist? An atheist is someone who doesn't believe there is a God. Everything happens by chance. There's no purpose. There's no rhyme or reason. A deist, a deist is somebody who says, yeah, there's a God, but he's so far away, he's out of touch. But a theist is somebody who says there is a God who is sovereignly in control of this world. A theist is someone who believes Jesus when he said in Matthew 10 that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father and that the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do you remember what we said earlier today from the Heidelberg uh, Confession? He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Now you said you believe that. (laughs) That means you're a theist. A theist is someone who believes what Isaiah the prophet said, that very famous Christmas time Passage in Isaiah 9, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on whose shoulders? President Obama's? Rick Scott up in Tallahassee? No, the government will be upon his shoulders, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's got the whole world in his hands. Your children, they're in his hands. Your grandchildren, they're in His hands. Your future, your health, they're all under His control. Be comforted today, Christian. Fall back on the pillow of God's providence. And then finally, the other effect that this ought to have on us is that it should give us power. Power to suffer graciously. Talk about the power of providence. If you'll turn in your Bible over to the last chapter of Genesis. Genesis 50 I want to read sort of the epilogue of the story. In Genesis 50, beginning in verse 15, we find out what uh, transpired after this story that we've been talking about today. Genesis 50, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father, that's Jacob, was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Well, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's sweet. See, Joseph had gone through hell. He had gone through all kinds of awful things, but he refused to take revenge, didn't he? Instead, like you see in that passage, he embraced his brothers. He invited them to stay in Egypt and they could be well fed and well cared for by him and his people. What was Joseph's secret? Well, his secret was the providence of God. He got power to forgive, power to love from the doctrine of God's sovereign providence. He looked beyond his trials, beyond his tribulations, to God in the control tower. And he rested in the will of God, the God who cares about people, the God whose grace is greater than all of our sin, the God who holds the world in His hands. And that gave Joseph power and enabling grace to be able to trust and hope and forgive. You remember Louis, that little boy I talked about before? He went blind, but 12 years later, he was a teenager of 15. And he picked up another all, A-W-L, and invented something with it. A system for helping blind people read by running their fingers over little dots punched on paper. Yeah, we're talking about Louis Braille. He published his first book in Braille in 1829 when he was just 17 years old. Can you believe that? Its title was, A Method of Writing Words, Music, and Plain Songs by Means of Dots for Use by the Blind. And ever since then, Braille has been a means of extraordinary blessing for millions and millions of people. I ask you today, what's your all, A-W-L? What's been that all that has been a dark providence in your life? What is it today? Is it cancer? Was it that divorce you had long ago? Was it terrible memories of your past? Maybe you have a physical handicap, a place of emotional brokenness. Well, God has an all, A-L-L, for you. All things work together for good for those who are trusting God and trusting Jesus alone for salvation. We're going to sing a hymn in closing that Melinda is going to play through for you first. But listen to the words of this wonderful hymn. It's hymn number uh, 108. 108. Listen to these words. Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever He does and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to Him I leave it all. 